All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, I want to say a very special welcome to you. So thankful that you've chosen uh, to join us uh, this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor here uh, at LifePoint uh, Church. So today uh, we're in continuing on in a series we've been in for quite a while now. This is week eight of a 10-week series going through the book of Revelation. Uh, now you'll note that the book of Revelation has more than 10 chapters in it, has 22 chapters. And so well, obviously we're not covering everything in great detail, but we're doing what we can uh, to really understand, to teach, and Lord willing, uh, by the grace of God, apply what it is that God, God's Word says. Um, now uh, this week we're going to be in chapter 17. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, we will also have the text on the screens for you. I will say as well, if you don't have a Bible, but you want a Bible, uh, please talk to me afterward. We'd love to help you uh, get your own copy of the scriptures. Uh, now, the book of Revelation isn't always necessarily sequential in terms of timeline. In fact, it, it rarely is, but there are really significant and major sections when it comes to the book of Revelation. And so last week, Ben did a great job of walking us through uh, the wrath of God uh, being poured out in, in these bowls, as the text showed us, against the unbelieving world. And so the section of the book of Revelation that we are within is really a section of last week, this week, and the next week where God is systematically dismantling and destroying his enemies. Okay? And so it's a little bit intense. And I think we just need to set our expectations rightly to say, yeah, we're going to read some stuff and it might not settle like, you know, fluffy bunny with us. Uh, I'm not sure where that phrase came from, but we're going to read some things and like, wow, this is intense. I'm not sure how I like th what this makes me feel, but we need to be truthful to, of course, the word of God. And, and the main point that we've said within this series is that the revelation is more about present hope than it is a future calendar. Okay. And the reason we've tried to, to say that over and over again is because sometimes when we're reading the book of Revelation, it can be really easy to look at very specific things and allow those points of interpretation that might be different from one group of Christians or another to divide us. But rather, what we should do is be able to be united, understanding that the revelation is really about the revealing of Jesus' glory and all that he is. And that should unite us, and that should center our focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing now, in the past, and into the future, right? It should be a central uniting of what God is doing. And so today, like I said, Revelation chapter 17, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, as I was prepping this week, I, I laughed out loud a couple of times. Uh, I don't know, I, I, it would help if I had the illustration on the screens, but I don't. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture. It's supposed to represent the creative process, and it's a bunch of scribbles. It's like a bunch of, it's like a pencil, and there's circles everywhere, and it's just a mass of crazy. And then there's like one little line that goes out. And this picture is supposed to represent like the, the creative process of fighting and wrestling through, and then there's, ah, it all makes sense. Um, today might turn into just the ball of scribbles, um, but I'm hoping that we get to the straight line where everything clicks and makes sense, but I need the Lord's help to do that. So let's go to God and, and ask uh, him to help us. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for our time together. Um, it's so good to hear voices singing your praises. Uh, God, as we open your word, uh, we do need your help. I need your help uh, desperately. And so, Lord, um, would you open your word to us, and by the power of your spirit, uh, would you help us understand? Uh, would you then take us from understanding to application and transformation? Uh, your word is powerful, and it 
It can change us and transform us. So, Lord, we need your help. Guide us in this. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay, everybody understand? Good. Um, so here's where we have to be reminded. Once again, we say this all the time, but I don't want to take any chances. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it's written with very symbolic language. Okay, And so this image of this woman who's riding this beast, it is a symbol that is to point us and to teach us something else. Okay, And so we see these two figures in this vision. We see the woman who is described as a prostitute, and then we see this woman is riding on something called a beast, and this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Okay, So I want to try to, in, in the best way that we can, ask the questions, well, who or what does this woman represent, and who or what does this beast represent? And so we'll first begin with the woman. Who or what does the woman represent? Well, thankfully, I think we get an answer to that in verse 5. I know we just read it, but I'm going to read it again. It says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Okay? And so we see clearly here that the woman is Babylon. All right? The woman is Babylon. And so then we might say, oh, great. Totally understand. Not so much. See, the original readers, they would have understood likely a little bit more than we do because the name Babylon carries with it a long history of meaning that I think because we don't have the same history, we might miss. And so thankfully, we have the Word of God that teaches itself, which is amazing. And so I think we need to ask the question, well, if the woman represents Babylon, what is Babylon? The woman represents Babylon, what is Babylon? And what are the things that these initial readers would have understand immediately when they heard the name Babylon? Well, to do that, we're going to go, like I said, into other places in the Scriptures to lead us and teach us. The first place we're going to go, 2 Kings chapter 25. All right, 2 Kings chapter 25. Uh, here uh, we see um, some of the things that would have come to mind when the name Babylon was mentioned. Okay? And so I know we're, we're going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in history from the time that this text was written, but the text says this. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. So the world we're in now is Jerusalem is a kingdom. It's got walls. It's got the temple. It's got lots of great things. And then we see this king called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he is the king of Babylon. 
and he's then laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, right? So that's the setup. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah, all right? And so there, it's a long, drawn-out siege. Jump down to verse 8. It says, In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, there was the nine, uh, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of uh, so different guy, Nebuchadnezzar, should have read this one in advance, Nebuchadnezzar, there we go, I nailed it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, wow, I'm really having a hard time here. Let me restart this. Verse 8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So there's a siege. Then this leader of Nebuchadnezzar's army burns down the temple, destroys the temple of God where the presence of God would have resided, burns the city, burns the houses. Then they systematically destroy the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. Complete, total destruction. And they carry the inhabitants of Jerusalem outside of the city into exile. The text continues on, verse 18. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council, who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army, who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land, who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of this land. Not good. So when these people hear the name Babylon, what they hear is destruction, what they hear is death, what they hear is a people set against God and his people. And so then when we see this woman in Revelation 17, and we see the woman is representative of Babylon, what we can say is that Babylon represents a desire to destroy the people and the purposes of God. Babylon represents this desire this focus on destroying the purposes and the people of God, okay? And so then this woman, that's what she then represents. She carries with her this attitude of destruction. Well, what we see, though, is that's not the only thing this woman represents. We saw that as she is drunk with the wine that is said to be the blood of of the martyrs or the blood of those who have died for Christ. And so she is enjoying, she is relishing, she is doing everything she can to say, I enjoy the death of the saints. Not good. But there's much more. If actually we go into Genesis chapter 10, back a little bit further in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 10, this is at a time uh, just after the great flood and the earth is being repopulated. Genesis 10, verse 10, we're introduced to somebody. Uh, this guy, his name is Nimrod. And so if you're an expecting mother, just consider it. Um, it says, uh, Nimrod, he was mighty before the Lord. And he goes out and he makes these great uh, civilizations. Verse 10, it says, The beginning of the kingdom 
of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, uh, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Okay, and so Nimrod, this guy who you're going to name your kids after, probably not a great idea anyway, actually. Um, he goes and establishes this kingdom, and one of those kingdoms is Babel. Then we jump over to chapter 11, and we can read verses 1 through 4. It says now this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Remember, that connects back to Nimrod and Babel. A plain in, um, in Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they laid brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they come together and they say, Hey, let's build something awesome. And what's the goal of that building? Let us make a name for ourselves. Interestingly, the, the plains of Shinar, this place called Babel, this is the same place where the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, would eventually settle. So what we see is Babylon has its roots here in the story of the Tower of Babel. Now what happens from there? Verse 7, God sees this and he says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and, left, and they left off building the city. There its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I told you today's message was like a giant ball of confusion, right? So then we go and ask the question again, well, what then does Babylon represent? We first saw it represents the destruction of God's people and purposes, now what we see is that Babylon represents spiritual seduction that leads to personal autonomy. Here's how I got that. Remember in the text, it says, no, what are we going to do? We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to become great. Well, that's not the purpose of humankind. That's not why we were created. And they would have known this. We were created to be image bearers of God what that means is you and I, as we go into the world, we are created not to seek our own glory. We were created to do the will of God, the purposes of God, which eventually then glorifies God. The purpose is God's might, God's glory, God's being exalted, not us. And so what we see here is this in the civilization of Babel, it is a spiritual adultery to say, God, we don't care what you're doing. We want to do our own thing. We want to be our own people, and we want to have our own glory. And so then you have this twofold representation of all that Babylon is. And so then when we go back into the book of Revelation and we see this woman who's dressed in scarlet and she seems quite alluring, what we can say is, look, this, this isn't necessarily, though it's connected, this isn't necessarily just talking about a sexual immorality in terms of physical interaction with one another, though that's certainly in view. Primarily, though, what this is talking about is a spiritual adultery that rejects God and places us on the throne of our lives. And so now, both of these things are simultaneously true. All of this would have been, I think, in the mind of these believers to say, who is Babylon? Reject God. Be your own God destroy the people and the purposes of God. 
Both of those things come hand in hand with this woman. So that's question one. Now, hang on with me. There's a second figure here. Second figure is the beast. And remember, this beast has seven heads and ten horns. And so we ask, okay, what is it? And I will be clear, this is a different beast than what we saw a few weeks ago when we looked uh, at the two different beasts that are representative of the Antichrist and the false prophet. That message is called Satan will rage, God will win, if you want more information on those things. This is a different beast, though certainly connected. Now, John doesn't know what in the world the beast is, which is comforting, right? This is comforting when like a prophet of uh, an apostle is like, ah, this is very confusing. And so the angel sees his confusion. And so we're going to pick up the text in the second half of verse 6 in chapter 17 of Revelation. It says, when I saw her, the one we just described, I marveled greatly. It's like, wow. And you can't tell if that's like a, an attraction or this like, what is that? Right? I think both could be in view. He says this, when I, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And so you're like, great. Thanks, angel. This is super helpful. And so we might expect a very clear, very direct description of what the beast is. It's certainly what we're going to get. Verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, and I was going to go and describe the beast. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are not to receive authority as kings for one hour to gather with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Thank you for that clear explanation. I totally understand. So what now is the beast? Let's, let's walk through this a little bit. The beast, it would seem, that we're given some clues. The, the first clue is we're, we have this language of the seven heads represent seven hills or seven mountains. Well, this is a little bit of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge to the original readers, okay? You've got to remember they're situated within the Roman world, and the Roman world is persecuting Christians. And so they can't just outright go and say, hey, Rome's evil, so you know. He has to code his language a little bit here. And so the seven hills, when you read ancient literature and ancient texts, what you see is Rome, the city, is built upon seven hills. And so immediately here, what we see is that this is essentially... Babylon represented as Rome. Now, what about the ten horns? Horns are often associated with power and rulers and authority. And so what we can then see and say is that these ten horns represent the leaders of Rome or of nations that go about and support and promote the activities of the woman. Do you see that connection there? Right? We have to understand here that this is Babylon at this time has been extinct for hundreds of years. What this means is that Babylon is timeless. What this means is that Babylon is present, it's past, it's future. Babylon is anywhere that 
promotes and desires what the woman promotes and desires. And then the beast is anywhere, past, present, and future, that is a nation or that has leaders that promotes and seeks to perpetuate or continue or fan into flame the desires of Babylon that seek to destroy God's purposes and God's people and seek to promote spiritual idolatry. Again, big circle of mess, but are you tracking with me here? So now what happens after that in this epic narrative? Verse 14, it says this, They, these two together, will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Okay? We, we do see here in a couple of verses prior to this, there's this seemingly rebellion against the beast and, and the woman. Verse 15, it says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw are the pro- uh, where the prostitute is seated are people and multitudes and nations and languages. And so again, we get this idea that Babylon is not just limited by one geographic zone. Babylon is everywhere. Jump over to verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so then, when we zoom out, what we really see is this picture of a universal not bound by geography, not bound by time, power that again seeks to destroy God's people's purposes and seeks to promote spiritual adultery. So then I think what we must ask, how do we respond? Because here's the reality, church. Babylon is today. Babylon is, is everywhere. If you look around, Babylon is, is out there in the world, and Babylon is right here at home. And I want to be careful in how I say that, because I think oftentimes when we think of this concept, we think, oh, that's just out there. And and that's true to an extent. I was doing some research this week, and there's an organization called Open Doors, and they track persecution across the world relating to Christians. Just last year, church, over 5,000 people were martyred for their faith in Jesus around the world. It's pretty stunning, pretty horrific. Just last year, over 2,500 churches around the world were destroyed by enemies of God. According to this website, over 300 million Christians around the world are experiencing some kind of difficult, hard, real persecution. When we see that, what we can see is Babylon. What we can see is this force that seeks to destroy all that God is doing. But I think we also need to look around and see Babylon here at home. See, unfortunately, a lot of times what has happened is in America, because we have a lot of great blessings and because of some language about God in in our founding documents, we can say, oh, well, well, you know, America is this chosen nation of God and we have more blessing here than anybody. And I want to be really clear. We have a tremendous amount of freedom and a tremendous amount of blessing here that we should not take for granted. The fact that you can walk in here without any kind of fear is an extraordinary blessing. We don't have to worry about our building being attacked. Praise God. But church, America is not God's chosen nation. Again, there's blessing here, but God set out to save a people through faith, not a nation. Does that make sense? God set out to save a people, as Galatians chapter 3 would say, the sons, are those, sons of Abraham are those who have faith in God. And so the reason I want to draw this out is sometimes I think we can be blind to Babylon in our midst because we believe we're this special chosen nation. 
And when we're blind to Babylon in our midst, what we don't do is pursue Christ and how he can change and destroy Babylon in our midst. Does that make sense? And so I think we need to open our eyes because if we look around at our nation, yes, blessing upon blessing. I never want to take for granted the sacrifices that so many have made. And yet, when we look around, talk about seduction. Remember this woman, she's so seductive, so appealing. And what does she want? She wants to seduce people to say, no, be your own God. You want luxury? Go ahead and get it. You want to be your own authority? Go ahead and do it. You want to make a name for yourself? That's what you need to do. If you look around at our culture and our world, what is promoted? Consumerism and my life is about me. I need to do whatever I can do to make a name for myself. The language of, no, pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me is not a popular cultural norm in the nation in which we live, is it? And so then I have to ask the question, well, how do then we confront Babylon in the world and how do we confront Babylon right here at home? And I think honestly, if, if we're truthful with ourselves, there's typically a few first reactions that we might have. When we hear about all of the destruction, when we look out into the world and we just see chaos and mess and it's just heartbreaking, I think for some of us, and I'm guilty of this, our first response is to want to withdraw. That's crazy out there. There's a lot of mess. There's a lot of mess in my neighborhood. There, it's just a lot. I'm just going to just holy huddle myself if I can. I'm going to bury my head in the Christian bubble of safety. That's such a temptation, especially with young kids. I just want to protect them. I just want to be safe. I just want to withdraw and say, I don't know, it'll all work out. Ah. <laughs> right? But imagine if Jesus had done that. Imagine if Jesus, seated on the throne, looked down from heaven and he saw the mess that humanity had become and he said, no, I'm just going to withdraw and stay within the perfect harmony of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in our Trinitarian perfection. Imagine if he had done that. We'd be in real trouble. What did Jesus do? No, he engaged. He went and did what only he can do. And church, you and I, we need to engage. We need to step out and say, no, I'm not going to bury my head in the sand. I want to be active in what God is calling me to do and active in addressing Babylon where I see it with the love and the grace of Christ. I think that's one thing that we can be guilty of. The second initial response we might have, depending on our wiring, is retaliate. Some of us might see or, or some of us might be being mistreated. And so instead of you know, turning the other cheek and being gracious, we say, no, I'm going to retaliate. If you're going to say mean things about me and I'm, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to say mean things about you. And what we can do is we can shame people and we can be really aggressive toward people and we can forget how Jesus treated people who were sinners and who were broken. I'm reminded of the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And this mob goes out and they drag her out into public and they're shaming her and Jesus says, no, 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 wait. He who is guilty of no sin, and I'm paraphrasing, correct me, email me, you throw the first stone. Nobody throws a stone. Jesus looks down at this woman, says, look, I'm not going to condemn you. He loves her in such a pure, holy, good way, but then he also says, go and sin no more. And we have to have a balance of, I see you, I have empathy for you in your brokenness, and I'm also not going to support and condone it and promote your sin. And I think... It's a really hard thing to do, but we need to not be a people who retaliate. 
I think the third temptation we have when it comes to Babylon in the world and Babylon right here at home is some of us, we, we, just, we just say, I'm just going to join in. Again, we're just bombarded with messages, with images, with ideas that say, no, what's really best for you is if you achieve and get as much as you can. That's actually going to make you happy. That's what is promoted to us. Commercial after commercial, image after images. We are marketed to thousands of times per day. And given this idea, this worldview, this hedonism, as we've talked in the past, that says the highest goal in my life should be my personal flourishing. And that personal flourishing is then defined by wealth, prosperity, and comfort. So we say, you know what? I want to be spiritually adulterous. I'm going to go and just do what I want to do. We say I'm going to be personally, sexually adulterous in a sense, and we so do what we want to do, and that's not the command or the call of Jesus. So again, I think three really common responses we could have. We could withdraw, we could retaliate, or we could join in. And so then what's the right response? How do we actually confront Babylon in the world and right here at home? Number one, we need to walk in the way of Jesus. Like Jesus gave us a model for this. Jesus entered into a very sinful, very broken world. And again, in the sto- like the story of the woman, he, he didn't just condemn her. Actually, John says he came into the world not to condemn the world, but the world was already condemned. He came to save the world. And so as we enter into relationship with people, what we need to see is now I'm bringing Jesus to the world. Like I might be the only Christian this person interacts with today. I might be one of the few Christians trying to really follow Jesus on my street. I might be one of the few Christians who who knows and has experienced the grace of God in my life at my workplace. How then can I walk in the way of Jesus? And I'm not saying you need to go yell on the street corner. That's probably not a very effective way to do things. But I think if you'll live in a way that glorifies Christ and not yourself, that will naturally change things. It will change people. People will see something in you that is far different, but you will not withdraw. And again, I think as you run across people who are maybe clearly wayward, clearly sinning, when we walk in the way of Jesus, our first response is not to say, you're a horrible person. Our first response should be, how can I have a natural relationship with this person and then point them to Jesus and trust him to transform their life and change their heart? Because I, I am no better. I didn't save myself. I could have been that person. I think about this all the time. I'm a sinner. Why did God choose to rip me from my addictions? Why did God choose to save me from my pornography? Why did God choose to save me from all of those things? Because he's gracious. And what that should do in me is give empathy toward others who are struggling in the same. Again, not to support or condone or encourage their sin, but to say, I have empathy for you. I see you. And I want a different life for you. And the only way that that happens is through the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus. It's different. We need to walk in the way of Jesus. And some of us might be like, well, yeah, you yelled at me for a while. You gave a bunch of examples. What does that really look like? Well, I think you just spend time in the Word. Like, really. If you just read the Word of God, you'll naturally see how God interacts with the world. And the Holy Spirit will work in you in such a way that that will begin to come out naturally and not in a forced way. But we have to be active in that. Second way, I think we really need to engage and confront Babylon in the world and here at home, is to first confront Babylon within ourselves. 
Because if we're really honest, the seduction of the woman, again, she's personified as a woman. This isn't like anti-woman, right? Uh, Jerusalem is also personified as a woman throughout the scriptures, right? But, but the seduction here is, how much of that do we have in our own hearts? You know, scripture talks about, like, we need to address what's here first before we go addressing the issues in other people's lives. And so I think maybe one of the most powerful things we can do, church, is to just draw a little circle around ourselves and say, God, change me. God, reveal to me where I am out of line. God, reveal to me where I'm in rebellion against what your word says. God, reveal to me the things that I am enjoying, pursuing, and promoting that you viewed serious enough to come and die on a cross to save me from. Think about that for a minute. We enjoy and promote things that God himself viewed serious enough to die for. So I want to just, God, change me first. And if we would all do that, there's, I don't know, like 100 people in the room, a little over that or something. Like, it's, it's a good number of people. What impact would that have in our families, our city? What would the multiplying effect of that be? Jesus changed the world through 12 random dudes who were terrified most of the time and had really dumb questions. Imagine a group of people who have the Holy Spirit, who have the complete, full revelation of God's Word, who are connected to the head and the body. Love that illustration. Imagine the power that that could have in our community. But we got to first say, no, change me first, God, because I need it. I want to be a different person. And people can change. God can change you. And so to sort of wrap things up this morning, I know it's sort of like the jumble of craziness, and hopefully we got to a straight line here. If you're here this morning and you're like, man, I, I don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus, I, I want to give you that opportunity this morning to say, Jesus is running after you. He's pursuing you. He desires a relationship with you so he can transform you and use you for his glory and purposes. Like he wants to plug you into eternal purposes that you can be a part of. And I want to encourage you to step into that. And the way that you do that is through faith. It's not through cleaning yourself up so that you can come to Jesus. It's coming to Jesus so he can clean you up and transform you. We can't get that backwards. That's you this morning. I want to encourage you in that. Maybe this morning you've got something that you just were convicted by, of like, you know, I'm, I'm promoting Babylon in living in this way, and I need to repent of that. If that's you this morning, I, I want to encourage you to take a bit of a bold step. We're going to stand up and worship here in a minute. I want you to walk to the back, and I want you to, to repent and ask for prayer. I'm going to ask Ben to go back there. I can stand back there for a few minutes, but not too long, because it would be awkward if the song ended and I didn't come back up here. But... I want you to, to take a step to say, no, I, I need real prayer. I need you to intervene on my behalf. Like, I'm struggling in this, and I want you to take a step to be prayed for this morning. And I want you to then see how God's going to work in your life and begin working in others' lives as we work for his glory and his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, so grateful for time together. God, I, I'm, I just want to ask that you would, as we walk away from this morning, give us clarity God, your, your word is so, you are so good to give us your word, and yet, Father, I feel like so often I just don't understand. So as we walk away this morning, would you give us understanding, and would you give us just one step? 
Say, I need to change this. I need to work on this. Holy Spirit, would you work in me to allow me to address this thing, whether it's forgiveness, maybe it's addiction to social media or to a substance, maybe it's bitterness against how you've been hurt in the past. Whatever that is for us this morning, God, would you, by the power of your Spirit, work in us and allow us to see a change in our lives to you, the praise of your glory. Lord, we need you this morning. We love you this morning. It's in Christ's name that we come to you. Amen.